Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Inside the WDF with me, Andrew Sinclair. It was a busy week on the WDF tour last week and that means there's a lot for me to dig into on this week's show. The third platinum graded event of the year is in the books after the Australian Darts Open took place in Moama. You had the Pacific Masters just after that, a silver graded event. There were two silver events in Belgium that produced four different winners and one injured marker. There's some news coming out of Canada that raises a few questions for the end of the season. And on top of all of that, I had a fascinating chat with the recent New Zealand Open winner, Victoria Monaghan, which will be on this week's show as well. But the first topic this week is recapping the action from the Australian Open. Uh, The tournament was one I was looking forward to. You know, regular listeners will know I've been talking about it in favourable terms for a while now because I really enjoyed the concept in 2019. I enjoy the concept behind it from the WDS point of view, you know, knowing their thinking and what they want this event and future events like this to be. I'm a big fan and I think it's the way forward for them to find their niche. Uh, And I think looking at the field on paper in advance, perhaps not as strong a field as the WDF or Darts Australia were hoping with the, the, you know, the invitational model they laid out. But, you know, it was still a strong field nonetheless. And there promised to be some really good games. And I think ultimately the tournament did deliver good games and worthy winners. And I'll get into the action in a minute. But there, there are some issues that I wanted to address First, I think one of them is that there are still valid questions about whether it should have been a ranking event and whether the points that were awarded were were awarded in the right way. You know, the points followed the WDF's model, but if you came bottom of a three-person group and you didn't even win a game or in certain cases didn't even win a leg, should you have received ranking points you know, you know, equivalent to coming to the last 32 of the Dutch Open or the last 32 of the World Masters. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the alternative to that would be other than you, you just don't get points for being in the last 20, you know, being bottom of a group, essentially. Um, so that that's one thing. Uh, and I think the other big one is the streaming element. So a lot of people were expecting that you'd be able to to stream the tournament over in Europe and unfortunately that that didn't seem to be the case which left a lot of people disappointed I'm not sure if uh, KO Sports which was the live streaming platform in Australia I'm not sure if you could have used that with a VPN over you know in the UK or Europe Uh, but that you know for, for my perspective anyway that wasn't an option because I was you know, away for a wedding at the back end of last week. So I was, you know, dealing with hotel Wi-Fi for a lot of the time. But even so, even if there was a way to watch it over here, it was certainly nothing straightforward or or obvious. Uh, I was told by Wayne Weening that there would be some delayed footage of the tournament on the WDF YouTube channel. I'm not sure when, though, uh, but I'll be keeping an eye out for that when it does drop because I, I always enjoy watching games back. But, you know, at least there was, you know, Dark Connect and, and updates from tournaments is something I'll touch on later with the the Belgian Open as well but I mean you know Dark Connect's always good you know regardless of whether you've got streaming or not but streaming would have been a big thing and realistically probably was what everyone expected as a minimum on this side of the pond anyway. Uh, In terms of the tournament action itself uh, I thought it was good Uh, you know there was nothing there standard wise or average wise that was going to blow you away and there were a couple of poor showings. I know, you know, Darren Carson for, from the ACT averaged 61 and 53 in his two games, uh, for example. But all in all, it, it was solid. And, then, you know, there weren't any games that you would call bad games. Yellow Class and David Platt had a good ding-dong. Uh, Neil Duff played well in his games. You had Scott Hallett, uh, you know, emerging as a surprise package through one of the qualifiers. Saw Mitchell Clegg, you know, kind of have a little resurgence and have a good run to the quarterfinals. You know, friend of the show, Justin Thompson, coming through the the last qualifier as well and and getting a win in the group stage was nice. Last week, I predicted that Yella Klaassen would win, probably beating Raymond Smith in the final. Um, Well, in the end, Raymond did get to the final, but up against him was New Zealand's Hopai Puha. Uh, Hopai has now been to six WDF finals from six events played in since he uh, competed at Lakeside in April. 
which is a really remarkable run from him. He's in arguably the form of his career right now. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely going to be a straight dogfight between him and Ben Robb to get the, the Ali Pali place with, you know, the other one of them coming over for the WDF Worlds next year. Yeah, I mean, the final between Raymond and Hopi looked a really good one. Momentum went back and forth regularly. Hopi, in the end, was unlucky to lose. Went from 8-6 down to 9-8 up and then missed multiple match starts. And Raymond, you know, being the clinical guy that we all know he is, punished those misses and won it 10-9. I suppose, in many ways, Raymond winning was the outcome that a lot of the players watching the tournament from afar would have wanted because he'd already qualified for Alexandra Palace. So ultimately, that big haul of ranking points for winning a platinum event don't really matter to, to him and they won't really affect the ranking table. You know, it would have been the same if Neil Duff or, or Yellow Clarsen had won uh, and hope I was, you know, well-placed anyway through the, the regional table and is now well-placed, very well-placed, you know, in the top 10 of the, the main table. Uh, so I suppose that outcome probably suited the players uh, as well. Uh, moving on to the women's tournament, I thought the women's tournament was absolutely superb. There were a few upsets along the way, and as I tweeted, it, you know, it had my highlight of the whole event, really, and that was people getting to see what Nicole Reno is already capable of and what she's going to go on to achieve in this sport. Uh, you know, one of the nicest guests on the show, her performance against Lisa Ashton was nothing short of sensational. Took out 140 and 134 in a 4-2 win. You know, to average 87 on your TV debut against the four-time world champion takes real skill, takes real guts and real confidence. And, you know, that performance is one that's going to give her so much, you know, not you know not just in that tournament, but, you know, in the months and years to come. Doing something like that, you know, she's going to know that's always going to be in the locker for her. You know, naturally, there was a bit of a dip for her other group game with Abby Morrison, but she played well, won that one. And uh, put in a creditable performance when she, she lost in the semis to Bo Greaves as well, went down... 6-3 in that one, but took out another big checkout uh, and certainly looked, you know, f from the scores and whatever, certainly looked very comfortable in against the best female player in the world. So uh, a very good tournament for Nicole and a, and a good women's tournament on the whole. I think Lisa Ashton going out in the group stages was a real surprise. And so was Kirsty Hutchinson. You know, I acknowledged on the show last week that she's been in poor form for a little while now, but I certainly didn't expect her to, to lose both group games. Uh, but, you know, she was in a really tight group. You know, Wendy Harper is a very, very solid player. Always going to hit those sort of mid to high 60 averages. She's just consistent. She's scrappy. And Kim Mitchell was someone I talked up pre-tournament because she's been on really good form this year. You know, she won that DPA event. She's run Tory close, you know, in one of the WDF comps, won a WDF comp for the first time in almost 30 years. So, yeah, you know, there's no shame in losing to either of them. And then, you know, to wrap up the women's tournament, the final between Bo and Mikuru was a, a superb advert, you know, for the sport of darts, not just women's darts, but darts overall. Just a, a shame we couldn't watch it live. You know, to finish with a 91 average and an 89 average through 13 legs is is really good. Um, you know, it was neck and neck through the first eight legs, four all, before Bo burst clear with a run of, you know, four legs out of the last five, took him out in 18, 15, 14 and 15, which that's a standard that really no one in the women's game is going to be able to live with. Uh, that win took Bo to eight titles for the year now, and I think she's unquestionably the best female player in the world at the moment. I'm looking forward to seeing how she gets on when she... She makes her women's series bow in, in a little, you know, in the in the coming weeks or, you know, months. All in all, I think the Australian Open was a success. The posts I've seen from, you know, Neil Duff and so on on Facebook, they had an incredible time, which I think everyone expected they would based on, you know, the sort of things Scott Mitchell and Jim Williams said last time. I think it's going to be here to stay. I think there was a good appetite for it in Australia. I think Darts Australia are big supporters of the WDF. Think they've shown they can run an event smoothly and you know they know the areas to, to improve uh, f you know next year and beyond so i definitely expect it it will be back and uh, you know if it is it'll be an event i really look forward to so that's all for the australian open uh, i'll get onto the pacific masters and the events in belgium in a little bit but now i wanted to introduce this week's guest and that's uh, victoria monaghan the new zealand open champion talking to victoria was 
uh, something I was really looking forward to doing since she won her title a few weeks ago now. And I would say that our chat ended up being one of the most insightful and, and you know, and interesting of the year so far for me. Uh, we discussed winning the New Zealand Open in Rotorua, qualifying for the World Championships next year, her background in dance, you know, grappling with gender dysmorphia issues and her recent transition, the backlash she's faced, you know, in New Zealand within the darting community and a lot more besides. I am now delighted to be joined by the New Zealand Open champion, Victoria Monaghan. Victoria, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, and, and hopefully you keep him well. Yeah, very well. Very glad to, to get you on the show. There's an awful lot to talk about. It's an interview I've actually I've been really looking forward to this one, but I want to start uh, right at the beginning uh, with you. How and when did you first get into darts? Oh, um, didn't expect that one. Um, my father played in the UK as a um, county player way back in, in the day. Actually played for the same club as um, Rapid Ricky Evans and his family. Um, so from about the age of seven, I um, I used to get dragged down to the electric club and we used to play down there as kids. And um, not long after that, it was, you're tall enough to uh, chalk. And uh, then you were tall enough to throw and hit the board and um, drafted into a team, basically. Did you grow up in the UK or, or New Zealand then? I was born in the UK, left the UK when I was 12 years old and emigrated to South Africa, ironically. And uh, from South Africa, I um, went back to the UK and met a Kiwi girl and ended up here in New Zealand. Yeah, fantastic. Um, 22 years ago. <laughs> so I suppose in those first years when you were playing... Was darts the only sport that you were playing or, you know, were there other things you were, you were getting involved with? I think, as, he, as okay, with my personal history and my personal travels, I think I found a lot of solace in playing individual sports, i.e. darts, swimming, and uh, those sort of individualised sports where you didn't have to be a massive team member. You could just be on your own and play. But as a, as a youngster, as a seven-year-old kid, my ambition was to, one, to don the, the world stage and, and go to the home of darts, and, and the other one was to be on bullseye. Um, quite weird uh, aspirations, I suppose, as a kid. <laughs> uh, now, as a big fan of bullseye, I've always, I always would have wanted to go on there and win the Rupert Bear novelty phone, so uh, um, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I just wanted the pity. I just wanted the bully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, in, the, in those early years of you getting into the sport, who were, the, you know, the biggest influences on you playing darts? I know you said that your father obviously played and, and that kind of got you into it, but it was it some of the players on TV that were inspiring you as well? Every, every household name rings true. Eric Bristow, um, we shared a birthday, so, of course, he was a, um, an idol. John Lowe. There was another, a couple of other local planet players as well. Um, I met Peter Everson when I was younger. He came around the, the traps uh, at one of the county games. Other than that, when we moved to South Africa, unfortunately, darts wasn't the primary. How can I put it? Wasn't the primary goal to play because we were so detached from the rest of the world. If we watched anything on TV, it was eight years old. We'd already seen it. So, uh, unfortunately, we regressed and went backwards when we went over there. So I suppose sort of moving away from darts then and into your, you know, your, your personal story, which is you know, a big part of this conversation. You've made that transition now, um, but when did you first start to sort of have those gender dysmorphia issues, essentially? Can you kind of pinpoint when those started for you? I sat back down quite a few years ago and wrote a story and as far back as I could trek was probably from when I was about three years old um, but society tends to make you live in a world where you just accept what everybody else is doing and you live for everybody else's life mm. and then as I say and then later on in life I decided that life was just too difficult to carry on the way I was. I needed to do something about it. Mm. Okay. I suppose it, you know it would have been a very different time when you were growing up, and even now, it, it's not the easiest topic of conversation for for people to uh, to talk about. 
were those feelings uh, and those kind of ideas or, or whatever, were they something you ever addressed before or did you only address them recently? I think I addressed most of them recently. I think the hardest thing is, is people seem to think that it's acceptable now, but it's, it is becoming more common, but it's not acceptable. People still have a perceived perception of how we should be, and this is not something that's as common as... Um, it's not something common, let's put it that way. It's not one in three sort of thing. People are not don't have this transition in their lives. And, and nowadays as well, a lot of them are catching them when they're a lot younger and getting into it and doing the transition when they're a lot younger because there is a backup, there's a service, there's a, there's a structure there for them. When I grew up, we didn't have that. Um, we kind of, if you did something wrong, it got clipped around the ear roll and told to toughen up. Um, very different world nowadays mm. and you talk about writing that that story where is that story now is that you know it, you know in a room somewhere do you still have a copy of, of what you wrote and stuff I, I'm, I'm happy to send it to you if you'd like to read it mm. um, yeah it's it's a personal thing and it's kind of um, progressed over the last two years uh, it started off as a text message to a friend of mine and ended up as about 10 pages in the end but it goes into a lot of detail and depth and a lot of feelings and, and and it's quite interesting because it started off was that the headline of it was I'm 48 years old and I've never felt so alone in my life and um, what it was was I was away and I was at a, uh, working and I was at a place where there was about 5,000 people and it didn't matter who I stood next to I didn't feel a connection to a single person there and I was just being ignored and very very strange feeling and I reached out to a friend of mine who helped. Um, she was in the UK, and she kind of pointed me in the right direction. And and I literally sat down and wrote a story. And that the starting line was, how many people stand in their life and turn around and can look back and see exactly where they started? In other words, where you stand right now, is this exactly where you wanted to be when you were three, four, five years old? Because not many people can and I looked and I saw how many times I changed directions in my life, how many times I ran away from things to try and get space so I could actually be myself, but still didn't understand why or how. There's a lot. Human brain is really difficult. It doesn't answer the questions for you, and you turn to society and they don't give you the answers either. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. That. So you know, in terms of in terms of the dance, then before this is something you and I have touched on before the interview you know you you played on the DPNZ tour uh, got to a couple of semi-finals but you said that you know when you were playing on that tour before you know probably the more interesting thing to talk about wasn't the results but was the fact that you were struggling with a lot of you know personal demons at that time is that something you're prepared to kind of go into a bit more yeah I, I think everybody has a battle that they're facing that nobody else kind of knows about and I guess a lot of it is how much you let other people in or let you share. You know, a problem, the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. Well, it doesn't. In, in the darts fraternity, a problem shared is <laughs> is in the toilet before you get there sort of thing. You know what I mean? Or at the bar before you get there. Um, gossip spreads very fast, unfortunately. But if you get the right people around you and the right help, there's a lot of people out there that can actually do good. And there's also a lot that don't. Um, I think I'm stronger now than I ever was. Walking through a battlefield of my own, I think I've come out of it at the other end and been a lot stronger because friends of mine who were at the darts the other week um, were witness to, to what was happening. And they said they were so proud of me because I stayed very composed where four or five years ago I probably would have reacted in a very negative way um, and probably given them reason to throw me out of the tournament. So... That to me has um, that to me is a very big milestone for me to know that I've actually become a better person at the end of this and tried to push through. And hopefully, I'll continue to do that and and be an inspiration for others as well. And looking back on the you know the, the databases and stuff with, with records of tournaments and, and tournament results and so on, uh, there's there's no real record for you of, of playing tournaments. Uh, you know, under under what would be uh, your dead name now. After 2014, did you just walk away from darts entirely or did you just stop playing in, in bigger tournaments? I, I think my headspace was not right. I think 
without, uh, I suppose, going into that sort of detail, I, I then struggled with depression and anxiety. Um, I knew that my life had changed around. I'd, I'd struggled a bit at home, had a, had quite a traumatic um, separation from my ex-wife. Um, I had two kids that I loved and doted over. And it was very difficult for me to, what I found solace in was on the dartboard where I could isolate and be myself and just shut off from the world. I couldn't do that anymore. I was in fear of where my kids were. My brain was not focused anymore. 2014 is when I stopped playing large tournaments. I still continued on a lot of the smaller um, club dart scene. And I think in 2018, I literally hung my darts up when um, I think I came runners up in the pairs at the Nationals. Um, lost to Craig Caldwell in the final. I can't remember who his partner was. Marty, I think it was. Um, Mr. Double Twelve to to win, and uh, they took us out. And unfortunately, my partner passed away not long ago. And um, it was kind of a detail to me to say, "That's it. This is a sign for me not to come back anymore." And um, and I, I was prepared to give up. But um, when you give this much to darts in your life. Uh, it's a big part of your life and, and it felt hollow that I was sitting at home and my kids were, um, why don't you get back on the dartboard, you know, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. So I made inquiries, I made, how can I put it, I made, I made inquiries after I'd made, found myself a little bit easier and um, the, the hurdles weren't as big as I thought they were going to be until I walked that day in the dart hall and um, realised that they were a lot bigger than I thought. Mm, yeah. <laughs> The issues relating to, to making the transition was something that you'd been grappling with for, for a long time. When was the moment that you decided that you wanted to make that transition and you wanted to address the, the issues that were there? 2020, I think we call it when the egg cracks. Mm. Um, 2020 is when I realised this was me. I started seeking help. Um, and you've really got to scratch and dig for it. You, there is nothing that goes, ta-da, we'll knock on your door and, and they'll give you all the help that you need. You really have to fight and dig for it. Um, so 2020 was when that started. Twenty uh, Mid-2020, I think May 2020, somewhere around there, things started to progress uh, considerably further. I think I hid away from the world for a considerable amount of time because I needed time for me to adjust because a lot of people don't realise that Doing a transition is not just a physical thing, it's a big mental factor as well. Um, and why we are wired differently between male and female on how our whole brain becomes, uh, it's the easiest way of, of centering yourself. And I know it sounds really crazy, but you center yourself, you kind of find yourself and then you accept yourself and then you kind of have to let yourself go and become who you are. And that, to me, was the biggest step. Um, I had some phenomenal friends around me, structured all around the world, that I could pick up the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning and just send them a message and know that they were there. That, to me, was the biggest thing. So I think in December 2021, I decided that it was 100% full-time. So I packed away, I think, nine boxes of dark shirts and boys' clothes, as we could so elegantly put it and um, packed them away and they've never come out again since um, and that was me so eight months I've been living full time as Victoria and I think in early 2021 January February I came out on social media um, <laughs> which was quite strange because thousands of people on social media got the information at the same time and, and probably 50 people just walked away and that was fine I didn't mind that. Um, I always used to laugh and joke and say, you know, oh, I've only lost 50 people today. I'll put an, I'll get another 1,100 gone by tomorrow. I'll be happy. <laughs> but um, the ones that have stayed have been very supportive and unbelievably kind. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, you know, when you made that decision, obviously, which was during COVID, which I imagine threw a, a few wrinkles into that as well, given New Zealand's lockdown rules. But uh, how was that conversation with your family? Okay, now that's a hard one. Um, okay, my mother still lives in the UK. She is struggling with dementia. Um, that that posed to be another problem there. 
my father had passed away a few years before, and I think with my father being around, I could never ever do this. He was he was quite an oppressive person over the top of us and stopped me from from being ourselves. We grew up in a pretty strict household, and quite funnily. We used to practice on the dartboard, and as a supportive parent, you would think, you know, come on, you can do this. And I can remember as a kid just being in tears on the dartboard, and he would be, come on, you can do this, and he would have me in tears. Saying that, it probably, that lesson probably helped me now more than ever because um, it toughened me up to shut away from the rest of the, shut off from the rest of the world and focus on what I was doing and not listen to his, his, um, techniques of teaching let's put it that way <laughs> my mother as i say has uh, <laughs> my mother as i say has dementia unfortunately and um, that's not gone down very well uh, i have a brother here in new zealand uh, also a dark player um, we haven't spoken for a number of months now um, he hasn't taken it very well uh, and i have a sister still living in south africa who is um, supportive but likes to stay neutral Mm-hmm. Um, she'll talk to me about hair products, but as long as it's not about transition. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had two children of my own who are unbelievable. They're fantastic, really, and honestly. Um, had they not been supportive, uh, you probably wouldn't have, I, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. That's probably the easiest one. As you were saying, that you know, the transition, a lot of it is a physical thing. So in terms of playing darts, has there been an adjustment process for you? Um, yeah, well, I had a, I had a niggling injury um, I'd carried for a number of years uh, in a wrist, and obviously when I stopped playing, the wrist kind of came right. Um, when I came back, and the, the big thing was, was I thought I could just pick the darts up and throw them as I used to, and the injury was still there, or should I say, the, the niggling part was still there, and it was causing me a lot of frustration. Um, the other thing was we, in transition, we tend to lose a, a considerable amount of muscle mass as well. Um, not being testosterone driven, we're now estrogen, estrogen driven, and my testosterone levels are unbelievably low, um, way below normal cisgender woman's levels, and uh, we just don't have the strength uh, that we used to. So you have to change techniques a little bit. There's also a couple of other little lumps and bumps in the way that can change the way you technique that you throw as well <laughs> <laughs> they can they can um, they can be a little bit um, how can I put it they can get in the way of your normal technique or what you thought was normal but um, other than that my style and technique is a very direct and upright style so I just had to change my grip very fractionally um, so I'm not using my wrist as much. I stand very, very slightly squarer to the board. Other than that, there's not a massive difference between the way I throw. I'm very tall as well, which has also allowed me to continue throwing at eye level towards the trip 20. Mm. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously the, the New Zealand Open was the, you know, the, the crowning success for you. But, I mean, before that, you'd tried to play... Uh, an event about three weeks before would have been your first competition, you know, as a, as a woman, and uh, you ran into quite a few issues, didn't you? I entered a, a, it's not even a, it is a local tournament, it's a large local tournament, and something I've supported for many, many years, um, and um, it's the West Coast Championships, and unfortunately, um, I ran into, uh, I will call it hostility, um, but it was drummed up by the wrong information given out to people, and it was drummed up purely before the event even happened. So when I walked into the hall, I had a, um, a very strange feeling that I was not welcome. And um, I'll be honest with you, I didn't play very well at all. I was nervous. I was um, put off by a lot of the comments that were going on. They weren't on my throw or anything, but there was a lot of shouting for the opposition, which I think also created a bit of a problem for the opposition as well so it allowed me to i would say my b or c game sort of thing was enough to be good enough to beat their b or c game when they were put under extreme pressure from their own club members and um i did 
I did win that one. I came back the next day to play the pairs, and halfway through the pairs, I think we got through to the quarterfinals, there was a complaint put in that I had said something in the effect of my darts were closer or something to that effect, and the girl burst into tears, and I didn't even get a say in the matter. I was ejected from the club under one person's ruling. I never got a say. I never got defended. I got thrown out, and uh, I lost the spot on a potential team that I was looking for. Um, that was quite upsetting. It took me two days to, to really calm down from that one. Um, and that was a little bit unfair because he still believes he was right on by throwing me out. Um, there was a lot of people who don't believe he was right. And my dance partner at the time was left totally bewildered because she didn't know what was going on. I didn't have a say. I didn't get to speak to anybody. I was just ejected from the building under a barrage of quite nasty words, let's put it mildly. Hmm. Yeah, talking of uh, nasty words, we'll move on to the New Zealand Open then. To, to play in that event, you know, sanctioned by the World Darts Federation, obviously there were rules that um, needed to, to be complied with. So sort of how long had you been having conversations with, you know, Bob Wilson and, and the New Zealand Dart Council team before actually getting to play in Rotorua? Um, I think I submitted some paperwork through to the administration there about six weeks before so it was before I'd even submitted it through to the other organisation and they came back and they said to me it shouldn't be a problem we just need to iron a few things out uh, kept coming back to me kept coming back to me and then on the very a week before the tournament I got a message to say we need one more thing from you and I'm like uh, one more what's that and they was told to me that we needed a um, New Zealand Government-issued ID. Now, we have a slight hiccup over here that our, none of our IDs in this country have our gender on them. The only one that can or does is a passport. You self-identify your gender, so it's not technically true because I can identify, but to try and get one in a week, I mean, it's going to be... But um, we did have one backup, and that was a government-issued ID through the health system, the NHI number, which actually has a photograph and my, and my gender on it, which they accepted quite voraciously and said, no, that's not a problem, that's perfectly legal. Um, that, really did, <laughs> that really did put a downer on me because I'd organised babysitters or dog sitters and, and I'd organised to get away and accommodation and everything. So uh, <laughs> I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to play. And when you struggle with any form of anxiety or mental dysphoria or of anything like that, silly little things like that can really turn into massive things and put you off your game. But fortunately, they settled me down and um, they were so accommodating and so they were so happy to have me there. I couldn't have been more welcomed by the committee themselves. They were very happy to have me there. And I believe they put a, um, a notification out to the players a, f a few weeks before saying that I was going to be there. If there's going to be any problems, you need to address them beforehand. Um, I, did, I only found that out afterwards. But uh, I believe that there was a, a group of people that, um, how can you put it, repelled against it, I would say. And they didn't want me there. They certainly made themselves vocal on the tournament. Hmm. Well, in, in in terms of you know that stick that you got while you were playing, was that throughout the day, or was it more as you got towards the the business end of the tournament? It was pretty consistent throughout the day. It got it got really bad towards the end because obviously you're the only you're the only game that's playing, and um, I think as the day progressed on. There was um, more time for people to spread rumours, more time for people to build opinions, more time for Dutch courage, if you want to call it that. And there was more time for people to um, certainly vocalise themselves as well. And um, I'd say it was pretty consistent. And it came in pockets and waves against who you were playing against. And I think, as I said, a lot of the time when they were barracking and not necessarily barracking me, but yelling and screaming that the opposition can do better, that kind of put them under a lot more pressure. And I think that was unnerving for the opposition more than anything else because I was just doing my own thing and carrying on. I had my supporters there and they were there for a very, very particular reason. They were non-dart players and they just gave me somebody to look at, somebody to recenter, and somebody for me to focus on between my throws and that worked so well for me. Obviously, you know, with all that noise and, 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 you know, issues going on, I imagine you probably weren't at your 
the top of your game. But I mean, how would you assess your performances on the on the way to winning the tournament? I think um, it came in it came in fits and starts because I think there was a lot of individualised uh, calling of names, which is it's kind of hard because you can't ignore walls and. Often on my backswing, somebody would pick a chair or bang a bang a something on the table. That was very annoying. Um, I did mention to the referee, you know, come on, can you get this under order? This is just disgusting. And um, it just kind of carried on no matter what happened. Um, there was a lot of barracking coming from the back of the stands. Unfortunately, it was usually when my back was to them and I was throwing, so I couldn't identify exactly who or pinpoint. It was just a lot of individualised noise. You know what it's like when you're at a darts tournament and you've got a thousand or a hundred people chatting away. It's just a white noise background and it's a, a rhythmic thing that's behind you and you can kind of get on the same level as that. But when somebody's whistling or shouting or calling your name, they're pretty specific to you and that's really off-putting. As for what it did to my game, um, I didn't play very well, to be honest with you. I do have more in the tank. I'm not playing any better than I used to play years ago. And I think the difference is, is years ago I've had another gear that I could go up. Here I seem to kind of flatten out. And um, I think the last leg I, I cracked a 180 and then 110 close um, against Wendy. She was on 113. And the 110 went in. I didn't make a sound. It just kind of put my hand on my mouth, turned around and went to shake her hand sort of thing. And, and um, it was called Game Shot and Match. I was, I practiced that close very regularly and um, it went away, went in, should I say, on the first attempt. So I was very happy with that. Absolutely. You know, your win was historic for a number of reasons. Um, does being the first trans person to win a WDF competition, the first trans person to qualify for a world championship... Does being the first to achieve that mean a lot to you? Yes. <laughs> Easiest way to put that, but I'm not finished yet. <laughs> not being cocky or not being um, branch, but um, there's still more to come. There is still more. And I think, I think that milestone that I've achieved now has given me such a boost um, personally, personally to get further now and more consistent i think it's going to raise the level of darts but not just with me but with all the people around me in the competition and i mean watching some of the girls play the other day over in australia um wow <laughs> i think i may still have to do a little bit more work um but I, i've had some practice sessions where i've consistently thrown six or seven legs um and, and been in that um up 90s high triple uh, low triple figures kind of uh, the six legs and then kind of falling back off again. So it's a matter of just getting the mindset right and trying to get back into that practice regime. And I think if I can bring it, then, then there's a possibility. As I said, my gender hasn't taken away my ability to play. I was always a competitive dart player, but not ultra competitive. That's made me elite, if you know what I mean. Not everybody can be a world champion, but... The opportunity is now presenting itself where I think I can and I know I could. There's a couple of players out there that are, I've got my eyes on. But, hey, on the day, you don't know how you're going to play. You, you, you come against somebody else and they're, they're, their want is more than yours and um, nerves get in the way or something else can get in the way and ruin your game. Takes those dreams away and you come back next year and play again. You touched on this towards the beginning, but you know, qualifying for that world championship, you know, which your, your win at the New Zealand Open gives you, that's obviously a lifelong ambition ticked off. Yes. Um, the, the funniest thing about it was I played the tournament not actually knowing what the main prize was. I was, as I said to you, I entered the Open to be the first transgender person to play. Then it was, I'm going to be the first transgender person to qualify. And then it was, hey, I can go this far, one leg in front of another, and we can play this, and we just go one game at a time, one dart at a time. And then all of a sudden, I was in the final. And I had my friends sitting there, and it was a long, long day, about 13 hours in the end. And um, they said, we're not going home now. You're going to go and win this. And I said, oh, I'm tired. You know, do I have to? And they went, you're going to go and win this. Don't make us sit here for 13 hours, and then you just 
give up. So that kind of inspired me a little bit more. And, and um, so winning it, and then it was the next day that they said to me, are you taking your spot at the World Champs over in the UK? And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I then started to do a little bit of digging and found some you know stuff on the internet. And I'd also qualified for... Um, the Masters over in Holland as well. And I was like, whoa, this is more dreams coming true all at once. You know, between now and then, I know you and, uh, you know, people in your local community are, are trying to raise some money to, to help you with the cost of coming over to, to Europe a couple of times within the space of a month. Well, we're looking at it in, in two different ways. I mean, going back and forth, the trips are expensive at that time of the year, flights and that sort of stuff. I mean, they're, they're well into the four $4,000 range. Um, and, and I know you can get cheaper flights, and don't get me wrong. Unfortunately, flying into Dubai as a transgender person is probably not the wisest move. So I have to kind of go a different way around, and that does cost me extra. That's my choice. But I figured that if I'm coming over to do a 36-hour flight one way and then back and then come back in three weeks' time, I'd rather come over and stay there for the couple of weeks and hopefully... Um, you know, I've got some friends over there that'll <laughs> not quite as easy as crashing on their couch anymore. But hopefully, they'll put me up, and um, I can I can go and stay around at their places, and, and um, maybe my mother will um, come to the party and um, let me go and visit. I'm not sure. Hmm. Hopefully, and you know, just a, a last a last couple of questions for me then. There are a number of New Zealand Dark Council ranking events before the end of. The year now, obviously, you don't need the points because you're in the world championships already. But you know, more points would help with potential seeding and also give you the match practice as well. So, despite the stick you got before, are you planning to play in the rest of them before the end of the year? Yeah, I, I okay, there's another one coming up this weekend, and um, I made contact with the council now. Uh, whether you're unaware or aware that um, there was a bit of Bob's um, Bob's wife passed away, mm. um, which has caused a little bit of a a delay in proceeding on what actually happened at the, at the nationals. Um, I asked them if it was possible that I asked them if it was possible that was I going to have to endure doing this again? And they said, oh, look, you can't change people's opinions. I says, no, I understand that. You cannot change people's opinions, but you can stop them from voicing them and you can give them some crowd control to stop them being horrible and personal and really derogatory remarks while you're playing. You know, the, those are the things that really they don't need to be viewed and they're really Neanderthal when it comes to that sort of stuff, especially with people who are not up to date or, or don't understand the rules and how the rules are. Um, so with Bob's wife passing away, I think that's delayed a few of the proceedings. So I am going to go to these tournaments. There is another four, I believe there are, on this side of, this side of the, 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 the Christmas. And um, I'll give it my all and see what happens. And hopefully my true game can come out and people will get used to seeing me around and it's not such a big shock for them. And um, would be nice to um, see if we can seal another one or see what we can do. Um, can't, can't promise anything, but let's see what we can what we can do. We're practicing for it, so anything's possible. And looking ahead, then for you, have you got one specific goal that you know this is the one thing that I really want to achieve in darts? No. Don't we all want to become world champion? Don't we all want to make it big on the on the PDC? Don't we all want to make money from the passions and and everything that we've ever done? Um, that would be a, a lifelong dream. I know it's difficult to do it on from this side of the world. Um, uh, my very good friend Kyle Anderson um, upped and went over to the UK and a couple of others have gone over to the UK to do this sort of thing. I'll have to see how things go. Uh, there, there's potential. There's got to be acceptance as well. And there's got to be a place for me. Like I always said, when if I went back to darts, it was going to be... I need to have a clear set of rules or, or a clear goal in front of me because there's no point in saying just run until you finish and we'll tell you where the finish is because that's that's not enjoyable. I, I want to have a clear goal in front of me. But let's see how things go. One step in front of the other and the body will follow. The last couple of years, that's what I've believed in and, and I'm making progress. Thank you 
so much uh, for your time today, Victoria. I really appreciate it. It's been brilliant hearing uh, your story, and I look forward to seeing you over in Europe for World Masters, World Championship later this year, beginning the next. I'll go and have that lemonade, and you will drink it this time, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't drink, so we can go and have a lemonade. And um, yeah, big shout out to everybody who's supporting. It's not just a dream for me; it's a dream for a lot of people out there. And I think I'm flying a flag for more than just New Zealand on this one. Um, Absolutely. Well, we'll see what we can do. That's all we can do. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Victoria. I know I certainly did. It was great talking to her and hearing her story and her journey, and you know, and all she still wants to go on and achieve in the sport great how cognizant she is that she is a flag bearer she is a trailblazer hopefully you know this is the start of more diversity and more inclusion in the sport of darts because i think the the greater mix of people you have in any any walk of life uh you know in any society in any sport in any group uh, the more diversity you have uh, the better and the more interesting people from differing backgrounds you can have in the sport the better I hope she does get to play in the rest of the NZDC events this year without getting a load of uh, unwarranted and unnecessary abuse. And I look forward to seeing her if she comes over for the World Championships and the World Masters, you know, as and when they get confirmed. And yeah, we'll definitely be catching up for that lemonade, that's for sure. Uh, I also want to give a mention to uh, Ben Francis over at SCNZ in New Zealand, who also interviewed uh, Victoria and did a fantastic job and encourage you to, to listen to that one as well touched on a few different things to, to, to what we did here um, and generally Ben shows a really good one this week it's got Ben Robb Hope by Puha and Victoria so it's a really fascinating listen so yeah really nice good fun that one getting back to the action from the last week the other event during the Australian Open weekend was the Pacific Masters you know one of the most tenured events on the Australian circuit Silver graded this year, and in the men's, Neil Duff overcame the disappointment of losing the Australian Darts Open semi-final the day before to win the Men's Pacific Masters. You know, he promised on last week's show that big darts were around the corner for him, and you know, barely a week later, he's won a trophy, his first since Lakeside, his third of the year, and the fourth inside the last 12 months. Uh, Neil had a, an 83 running average uh, for the tournament. He survived match starts to beat Justin Thompson in the quarterfinals before then beating Mal Cumming 5-2 in the semis with a 92 average and Hopai Puha 6-2 in the final. Uh, Neil's back to WF World number one now. He's got a very busy few months ahead, but you know, with that win, played well in the Australian Open and took a good performance from Raymond Smith to beat him. So, I've got the feeling that, you know, Neil wasn't mucking about when he said those big darts were coming. Then uh, I think there's going to be a fair few more titles uh, before we get to the next World Championships. I think something that's, uh, you know, moving on to the women's tournament, something that's interesting to point out is that there were 79 women playing in the Women's Pacific Masters and 118 men in the men's. A gap of only 39 players is very good. You know, it's certainly far better than the, you know, the gaps that you'd see any anywhere else, really. Uh, so great to see such a strong women's field for the Pacific Masters. Uh, Lisa Ashton won the tournament. It was her first WF title since the 2019 Czech Open. Obviously, on paper, that looks like a, a massive gap. But, uh, of course, she was in the PDC for two of those years, so she couldn't have won anything. And Lisa looked really good in doing it. She came from 3-0 down in the semi-finals to beat Bo Greaves 4-3. Lisa finished with an 89 average in that game and threw five 180s in a, in a seven-leg game. So, yeah, that was Lisa on top form and uh, ended up being a really good ding-dong between those two. And then in the final, she beat Tori Kewish 5-1. So, good points all there for Lisa, made up for the, the disappointment of the Australian darts open not going to plan. And those points now put her well on the way to, to World Championship qualification. Um, there are a few more events later in the year that I think she could well play in. And I think realistically, even if she only plays in a couple of them, you know, one or two decent runs and she'll be right amongst it, you'd have thought. And, you know, she's won that title four times before. If she's in the field, you wouldn't bet against her being a, a threat to win it. You know, she's that sort of person. Bo disappointed to lose in the semis, but again, it took an incredible performance to beat her. And I think during the day, her running average was slightly higher than Neil Duff's and her first nine average for the tournament was over 100. So she's she's playing well, there's no doubt about that. 
moving away from, from the action in Australia and over to, to Belgium, you had the Antwerp Open and the Belgian Open. The, the issue with the Antwerp Open on the Saturday was that there were no updates anywhere. You know, those events in Belgium used to use the Dart for Windows software. They're, I mean, they still use it for the draws, but they don't appear to use it uh, for updates during the day anymore. I'm not really sure why. You know, I've said before, I don't expect every federation to use Dart Connect, but to have nothing all day is a poor show. And I really do think that all of them should be sharing results and updates. You know, it doesn't have to be world-class social media coverage. It literally just needs to be, you know, results of how people are getting on. But but in the end, for the Antwerp Open, results I was reliant upon... Vilko Vasink sharing stuff. Evert Zoma, the photographer, was posting results as and when he saw them. Jamie Lewis, of course, won the, the Antwerp Open men's singles and his manager was tweeting as he made his way through the tournament. So, realistically, I only knew who was in the final because Jamie Lewis's manager tweeted something and then I dropped Nick Kenny a message because I saw he'd posted on Facebook that uh, he'd lost in the semis. So I asked him who, he, who he'd lost to as we had a you know a chat about picking up points and all that kind of thing. It was better on Sunday. There were more updates on the Sunday for the Belgium Open, but that was because Pim Huberts from Darts Actual was there and he was providing, you know, like official media coverage, doing interviews with the winners and so on. But you're not going to get that at many of the WF events or, you know, or any really. So, yeah, definitely room for improvement. In terms of the action, though, the Antwerp Open uh, titles were won by Jamie Lewis and Aletta Weiser from the Netherlands. It was great to see Jamie Lewis win. It was his first WF title since 2010, which is crazy to think. You know, he's still a young guy. that It's been that long for him to, to win a title. But, of course, as I say, was in the PDC all those years. Um, you know, he's admitted that, you know, as his PDC tenure came to an end, he wasn't in the best place. But I think through these WF events, he's getting his confidence back. He's got a good management team. And, you know, his weekend in Belgium, he won the Antwerp Open, got a quarterfinal the next day. He's now got over 200 points in the rankings and is in a really healthy place. So he's well on course for a World Championship place by the time the season is all said and done. So it's a really good return to, to form for him. Hopefully look forward to speaking to him in the near future. Uh, Aletta, meanwhile, in the, the women's single, was a first title for her, which was always nice to see a new winner. She beat Laura Turner in the final. I've seen Aletta playing in a lot of events this year. She had a few battles with Joe Clements, often seemed to get drawn together. Um, but she's never really broken through past like a last 16. But this weekend, she picked up a title on a quarter final and is now into the top 30 of the women's rankings. She's only 28, she's obviously still developing, and I think now she's got one title under her belt. She's someone we'll be seeing more of uh, in the future. Uh, moving on to the Sunday, the Belgium Open, the men's Belgium Open, was won by Wesley Plazier. Uh, I backed him on last week's show to take one of the titles because I think he's arguably one of the best players outside of the PDC. And he looked dominant in the Open. He beat Martin Turner in the semis. Another good run from Martin, uh, which was really good to see. And then Wesley thrashed Johan van Velsen, uh, the Dutch national champion, 5-0 in the final. I hope Wesley plays a few more of the WDF uh, events this year. You know, there's two more in Belgium. There's the the Spanish Open, which is tied to the Europe Cup, which I believe he's playing in. Um, Because if he plays in those events, he's got the game to pick up the points and qualify for the World Championships. And he is the sort of player who you want in the World Championships because he's just a brilliant dart player. He's got a fantastic top game. Um, I know he's not the most confident of people. Uh, He's quite shy by all accounts, but... You know, he's played well in the Euro Tour. He's played on a stage before. And, you know, you want players like him that are going to produce fantastic performances and and be involved in great games. Uh, So hopefully, you know, we see more of Wesley uh, in the deep stages of tournaments later this year. Women's Belgian Open. uh, It was second time lucky for Laura Turner. She'd lost in the final on the Saturday 5-3. But on the Sunday, she won the final 5-3. This time beat Lorraine Wynne-Stanley who, you know, I'd, I'd tipped it to go well. Great points haul for Laura. It was nice to see her in such strong form. Uh, I know she was disappointed with, you know, the women's world match play in some respects, so it was good to see her kind of get a rebound performance in, in Belgium and pick up a good haul that's put her in a decent place in the rankings. Aside from the ranking action, the main talking point for me was the the news coming out of Canada. So it was announced last week that the Klondike Open, uh, which was supposed to be a silver event, wouldn't have points anymore. No 
real explanation was given. It was just saying that it wasn't going to be WF ranked anymore. And then when I looked at the calendar, the Bob Jones Memorial has been taken off the calendar for this year. Now, I've since learned that the Bob Jones Memorial was removed because uh, rising COVID cases have affected the military base that the tournament is supposed to be played on. So, you know, it was a no-go. But that means that Canada currently, as things stand, unless anything is added to the calendar between now and the World Masters, they will only have had three ranking events in the 2022 season. And the WF rules specify that you need five to meet the threshold for World Championship places. So as such, Canada wouldn't have anyone at the Worlds next year unless they came through the main table. You know, it seems weird that, you know, this year... They had four players, which was, you know, I think the most or joint most they've ever had in the WDF World Championship. Sean Burton, Rory Hansen really impressed. And, you know, I was expecting a really strong crop of Canadians coming over this year. The likes of Kylie Edmonds are in a good place. Nick Smith. But, you know, now it looks like there's going to be nothing from them. It seems really weird because the WDF president, Bill Hatter, is Canadian. So you thought that with that in mind, Canada would be a really strong territory. But... It seems not. By all accounts, the Canadian Federation's not in the, the rudest financial health, so maybe that's a factor. Maybe the sanctioning fees are, are a factor. I, I don't know, but it certainly seems an odd development and a shame that, as things stand, there won't be any Canadians there, but certainly something worth keeping an eye on in the, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, looking ahead to this weekend, there's just the one event, and that's the John Wilkie Memorial in New Zealand, which is a silver event the main guaranteed absentee from that is hope by puha because he's off to play in the pdc world series in queensland and australia so yeah hope i's run of six straight finals he won't be able to extend it to seven for a little while yet you know it won't be broken but he just won't be there uh, ben rob's been acing it recently won two dpnz events the weekend just gone i expect him to to produce more of the same this weekend uh, i think the women's will obviously be really competitive uh, I hope Victoria does get to to play. I know she said in the interview that you know might not work out, but hopefully she does get to play. But beyond her, you know, Nicole and Wendy are likely to be in action and and continuing the good form they showed in the Australian Open. You know, I would have said they'd be continuing their battle for, you know, the World Championship spot through the regional table. But they both played so well at the Australian Open, been so dominant domestically that realistically. Both of them have a very good chance of coming through the main table now uh, without needing to worry about the regional table. But, you know, still be very competitive with, you know, those two, Victoria, if she plays, Tina Osborne, etc. Just before I go, there are two listener questions that I want to address this week. So uh, first up is from friend of the show, John Scott, who asks, will there ever be a boy born who can swim faster than a shark? Uh, now, I feel like there's a joke there that I'm definitely missing, but a rudimentary Google earlier informs me that the fastest top speed a shark can get to is five miles an hour, which isn't that dissimilar to like an, an elite Olympic swimmer, like a, a Michael Phelps or a Chad Leclerc. So uh, I would think that maybe there would be an elite swimmer like a Phelps who could probably swim as fast as shark at one point in time you know at their top speed but obviously the shark can probably sustain that for longer than a you know a mammal can <laughs> interesting question john i appreciate that one as always and then the other one comes from friend of the show oki balboa who says do you think the wdf should try with national associations to implement an australian darts open in every continent so they can showcase local regional talent which is around the darting world now that is a really good question because based on conversations I've had in the past with the likes of Richard Ashdown and you know Nick Rolls and so on, events like this are a key part of their strategy moving forward. Now, if they do them properly, which you know is bringing over the top ranked players in the WDF system to to kind of compete against these regional players, that requires money and it requires investment. And on the host country point of view. It requires facilities, it requires broadcasting, it requires, you know, really good setup, professionalism, etc. Um, there's a lot of dominoes you have to get in a row. But, you know, in theory, the plan is for there to be more of these moving forward. So, 
you know, if it wasn't Australia, it might be that there's one in Japan. So you hope to attract all the best players in East Asia or uh, you have one that's in, say, Romania or, or Hungary, where you attract all the best talent in Eastern Europe, something like that. That's certainly the plan. And I certainly think that's that for me, that's the niche the WDF can tackle. If they are going to have, say, four majors in a year, you have your World Championships, your World Masters, your Dutch Open. And then this one would be the fourth one, essentially. And I think you could have it rotating around, almost like a World Cup or a Europe Cup. It could rotate around. So maybe it's Australia one year. Maybe it's one of those other places I mentioned the next, you know, maybe one year it's, you know, America or something. I think that's certainly a route for them to go down. But I don't think you want more than one in a year or you can justify more than one in a year. Because I think if you have more than one, you then have more issues of it kind of being like an invitational circuit and you're taking the top ranked players away from opens. I think, you know, with Australia, players have gone out there for 10 days or so. Players can't necessarily justify making a number of those trips in a year. So for me, it's about doing it once and doing it well. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I think it's an avenue they should pursue more moving forward and I think given how this year's has gone I think it's going to be a permanent fixture on the calendar moving forward whether it's Australia every year I don't know but uh, I certainly think it's a model you could take around to a number of places Uh, but anyway that's all for this week a big thank you to Victoria for her time and to you for listening support is always greatly appreciated I'll be back next week for episode 102 In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at amsinclair97. You can follow the podcast at Inside the WDF. You can like the Facebook page, Inside the WDF. And you can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you on the other side.